try that again. We are speaking with the one and only uh, Rick Lee of the band uh, 10 Years After. The uh, latest is A Sting in the Tail. The album first came out in 2017, but it is being re-released with a bonus tracks. And as we say here in Montreal, la bonjour, Rick, comment allez-vous? How are you? Uh, let me think about this. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, the French has escaped me. I'm normally a bit better, Ozzy. You caught me out there. But I'm yeah. good, thank you. Yes. So so let's talk about this because there, there, there's so much history with the band, but let's focus on on the present. You, you've got this re-release coming out. You've got these four bonus tracks. Uh, talk to me about putting this album together uh, and 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 the well, just putting it together because it sounds great. Thank you. Um, we it, it was a bit of a uh, a new thing for um, for Chick Chick and me um, because we'd not written in a collaborative way before. Um, we'd done individual tracks on some of the old Ten Years After albums, but most of the writing was Alvin. And uh, we, <clears throat> so it was it was a new sort of venture for us. Uh, we have two new guys who are fantastic. We have um, Marcus wow. Bompanti on vocals and keyboards, uh, not keyboards, sorry, guitar, and uh, we have Colin Hodgkinson on bass. Yep. And, and uh, on keyboards we have Chick Churchill, of course, my old mate for over fifty years. Um, so I went down to London to write with Marcus. I, we, we put together about eight eight songs, I think. And then um, Colin went and, and wrote with Marcus and then Chick did. And the reason we did it that way, Marcus was the hub because he's the chord man. And obviously, lyrically, he, he would want things to fit and, and, and also um, pitch-wise, you know, with the keys and stuff. So that's that was the basic songs being put together, just the verse and chorus. And then we honed them a little bit and got demos together and sent them to each other. And then we arranged a rehearsal, and that's when we really started kicking the stuff around and, and, and getting it into shape for what we really wanted. And we worked hard to make it a, a radio-friendly album. Um, I think the longest track on there is um, Up in Smoke, which is about six minutes. Uh, in previous uh, incarnations, if I take an example of um, <clears throat> I can't keep from crying sometimes, we uh, we uh, that started out as a four-minute track on the very first ten years after album, and I think by the time we finished with it with Joe Gooch when Joe Gooch was with us and Leo Lyons, uh, it was 19 minutes long. Um, and that's because we basically had the, the verse and the chorus at the beginning and the end, and then anything in between was anybody's guess. We would, we'd be jamming it, and uh, when Alvin was with us, he was he was chucking in new bits and pieces all the time. So this time we wanted to make something that, that we thought people could listen to. For uh, it's it's fine if you if you're really into ten years after and you've seen us live and whatever, and you want a, a, a memento of that occasion, I guess. But, um, yeah, so anyway, this worked for us. We're really, really happy with it. We're very pleased with uh, the way it came out. It's been out in Europe for about two, nearly three years now. Yeah, um, but but not the deluxe edition with the bonus tracks. Well, because uh, what happened was a friend of mine, uh, a DJ in Philadelphia, T. Morgan, I first met him in 67, and he was the first man in America to actually play 10 years after records. He'd been over to England, seen us at the Marquee Club, and he picked up the first two albums, started playing tracks. Um, 
And he said, you know, this this thing in the tail album is, is too darn good to be to be lost. It's only available on import and the occasional um, somebody might order one from the distributor. You, you need to get it out there and let people know it's out. So he very kindly introduced us to Deco Entertainment. That's D-E-K-O. Um, yep, I've heard of them again. before. Sorry? I've heard of them before. They've, they've yeah. done great work. Yeah, good. Oh, well, they're working very, very hard with this. I mean, I'm very pleased with the deal so far. And they, um, they're putting it out on the 19th of March. And the reason it's called the Deluxe Edition is because they've added four live tracks, which were taken from a subsequent album we did called Naturally Live, which I'm hoping we can get out uh, in America maybe later this year. And Canada, of course. Of course. Um, well, I was, I mean, the North America is how it's defined in contracts. <laughs> it is. It, America and Canada. Hey, let me just ask you before we go on. You, you got to work, or you're working with Colin, and Colin, of course, got to do so many albums over the years, but he's on one of my all-time favorites. He's on the, the uh, Slide It In with uh, David Coverdale and Whitesnake, and, you know, there's two versions of that Slide It In. I happen to prefer the British mix with Colin and so on and so forth, but... What what does he bring to the mix? Because that son of a gun can play. Uh, he certainly can. Um, he's he's um, he's the absolute rock, you know. Um, and he's also we call him the Groove Master, because uh, which is German for Groove Master, of course. Um, and he 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 lays down the grooves. I mean, the the, the best example I can give you is um, is Love Like a Man. Which we still do, which was a, I don't know if it was a hit in the States, but it was a, it was a top five in, in England and Europe. And when we, when we, we always do, obviously the riff has to be there and the verses and the chorus. And then the solo, what I do at that point is I'm, I'm kind of just vamping, just keeping us a very simple beat. And then we, Marcus walks across the stage to, to Colin and they face each other. And Colin then, Marcus is kind of vamping as well, and and Colin then fiddles through a few grooves until he finds the one that he fancies that that night, because uh, it's never the same one. And uh, and then I'm waiting until that happens, and then when he settles into that groove, and then Marcus is jamming with him, then I start to jam a little more and change the rhythms a little bit around what he's doing, playing on and off of what he's doing. And Chick's doing the same. Chick's very good rhythmic player, um, and and that's then that solo will develop. And sometimes it reaches incredible highs. Other times it, it doesn't. You know, it's just it's just luck of the draw as to whether everybody's really gelling together, or or if the if the audience is. I mean, most of the time the audiences are really with us, which is fantastic. But you do get the occasions when it, it just you know doesn't click. But most of the time, about ninety nine percent of the time, it works. So that's that's how it works with Colin and me. Well, that, that's the thing because as the rhythm section, you have to click, and if it ain't, you got you got to replace. And I'm assuming that when he walked in, it just locked because. Um, well, it, it took a bit of time because we, really? we uh, well, Chick and I wanted to use um, um, a, a guitarist we worked with before. All right. Um, but sadly, when he came to the rehearsals, he was a bit overawed by what Joe Gooch had been doing. Joe Gooch was a very technical guitar player, very, very fast, 
um, and, and this guy felt, I think he felt intimidated by it, but, and it, it didn't, so I, I, we had to ask him uh, or tell him that, sorry, but it wasn't going to work, which is disappointing, you know, on a friendly level and, and a musical level. And then we were uh, really and truly, I was working through a list that was about as long as my arm of people. And we were getting towards the end of that list. And Chick was in Australia visiting his son. And he phoned me and he said, what's happening? Have we, have we got somebody? I said, well, we're running out of people. You know, I said, a lot of the people have been very flattered to be asked, but they're working on their own thing and, and they don't want to change what they're doing right now. Anyway, a bit of luck. I was talking to a, a PR man, not not about the band, about something totally different. And uh, I asked him if he knew any good blues, young blues guitarists and singers. And he said, well, I know a very good blues singer. He's just been nominated for a blues award. Um, this is I'm going back now to 2013-14, you know, when Marcus first joined us. And... Um, he gave me his name, but I, I couldn't find him anywhere. I looked on, uh, he didn't have a website at that point. Um, I did, eventually I found him on Facebook and I wrote to him and said, I don't know if you'd be interested, but we're looking for a, a, a new lead man for 10 years after. Would you be interested? And uh, he came straight back to me and said, yeah, I'd be very interested. So then we got some rehearsals together and um, and off we went. And that's that's when it really clicked, yeah. Yeah, uh, talk to me about the decision to move forward because you know you you, you look at bands that that change members, some are successful, some are not. When you got to 2014 and you said, "Okay," uh, talk to me about that decision to not pack it in and not go, "Oh, we're done," and say, "Nope, we're going to keep going because we've got more to say and more shows to play." Yeah, actually, in a sense, it was Chick's decision. I said to him, so what do we do now? Are we retiring? You know, we weren't young guys even then, you know. And uh, and he said, well, what's the reason? He said, we make a good living out of what we're doing. We've got this amazing um, catalogue of, of, you know, heritage stuff that Alvin's left us. Why don't we find some new people and, and, and carry on and keep doing it? So I said, fine, that's great. That was the answer I was looking for. You know, um, and Colin was always first call because we'd met Colin uh, a lot in Europe when he was working with Spencer Davis Group. And uh, when I called him, he, he uh, Spencer had just disbanded the band. And, uh, and I said, would you fancy having a crack with us? And he said, oh, that's great. He said, yeah, I was wondering what to do next. You know, I, I uh, hadn't got anything in the pipeline. Um, and, and I mean, he was always going to be first call because he's such a great player and such a great guy as well. Um, and that's as important in a sense as the players, you know. Um, absolutely. Sorry. I said, absolutely. Um, let me, let me just also ask you about making new music because you're right. You do have this catalog. You can book a show in Montreal tomorrow, pandemic notwithstanding, and play your 15 greatest and everybody's going to clap and go home happy. Yeah. Why why go through the rigmarole of getting a studio and writing songs and figuring out parts and blah blah? Why not just say fuck it? Sorry. <laughs> but why not just say F it? We're gonna go play I'd love to change the world twelve times and that'll call it a show. Why, why bother? Well, it's interesting you mentioned I'd love to change the world. Because, greatest uh, song. Greatest song well, ever written. Well that's one of that's one of the live tracks with the with the new deluxe edition. Yep. Um but um Alvin would never play that live. We never played it live with Alvin. Um, I, quite what the reason behind that was, I never figured it out. 
uh, something to do with the acoustic guitar and the electric guitar. But I mean, Joe Gooch got around that to begin with. He, he played the, he had an acoustic guitar set up on a stand and he played the beginning on that and then moved over onto the electric. Uh, later, he just changed it and used a, a, a quieter sound for the acoustic parts, which is what Marcus does. Um, so that, I mean, yes, we could just always do that, but um, we've always wanted to keep moving forward. Um, when we had new players, the first thing we did actually, <coughs> excuse me, with Colin and, and Marcus was we did a, a live album, put a live album out very quickly called The Name Remains the Same, um, just to let people know that the band was still going and, and we had new members. Uh, then we decided it would be good to do a, 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 an album that we all could participate in with new, fresh material. And we do change the show a lot. We, we, we rotate stuff. We don't always stick with the, with the same songs. Um, and we'll probably still be drawing on a few of the um, Sting in the Tail songs to put live. We don't do them all yet, but um, we do a lot. So we mix and match. So it's, it's probably... I think it's probably a, a 60% favour in, if you like, in, in, in favour, sorry, it's 60% in favour of the old songs, uh, purely because we do a two-hour set, and I'll explain to you another little bit, which makes it work. Um, and, then, and then we do 40% of new stuff. Um, and when I say new stuff, some of that is actually new in the sense that it's very old TYA stuff that we pull, pull into the set. Um, uh, I'm coming on, for instance, which hadn't been done for ages. And in fact, we more or less, we well, didn't rewrite it, but we, we, we changed it. It wasn't quite a finished song when, we, when, when it was done. On you the, gave it a live treatment, which is, you sorry. Know, you gave it a live treatment, which yeah, is what well, you should yeah, be doing. We, we kind of finished it. It needed rounding off. It, it wasn't, it wasn't rounded off, you know, so we did that. Um, and what we also do now is we do a, a short um, semi-acoustic slot in the middle of the show. With three songs, we do, and they're all Alvin songs. We do "Portable People," which was a single that disappeared without trace. Uh, but Marcus really liked it. He said, "Can we do that?" I said, "Yeah, why not? Let's do it." And then, um, and we do "Don't Want You, Woman," which was Alvin's take on a Brunsy idea. And then we do um, "Losing the Dogs," which Alvin had written, co-written with uh, Gus Dudgeon, who was the engineer on our first three albums. And what we do is uh, Marcus sits down at the microphone with a semi-acoustic guitar. Colin sits on a seat at the side, and I'm sitting between the two of them with just a snare drum and brushes and, and uh, occasional stick, and then chicks on the, on the keyboards on the other side of the stage. Um, and it, it, we weren't sure when we first did it how it would go, but it goes down an absolute storm. And I'm able to do little stories about the songs, which gives it some nice background, you know, for for, uh, for the audiences. And it makes it a, an intimate show. Since since we've mentioned Alvin a couple of times, let, let's just talk about Alvin for a second. I mean, yeah. I mean, just one of the greatest guitarists to to walk the face of the earth. No denying that he was just incredible. Um, what are some of your favorite memories of album and, and, and what did he bring to the band? Because, you know, it's one thing to be a great guitarist, but it's another thing to be a great band member and play for the song and play for the band and not just go off and be, I'm the star here. Um, what did he bring to the band in terms of, of, of everything, songwriting, musicality, performance? Well, um, my 
one of my fondest memories is actually about uh, I'd Love to Change the World. Because when we recorded that, I was ill to start with. I was away for two days from the studios. We were doing it in Olympic Two in, in, in Barnes in London, which is where the Stones used to record actually at one time. And Olympic Two Studios, just to give you a bit of a feel of what was happening, was it was about three or four steps. The control room was three or four steps lower than the actual studio. So to get into the studio, you had to go up these steps. And then the drums, and I guess it was the engineer's preference, it, it wasn't anything to do with me, were set up in the corner right by the control room window, which if I was sitting on the drum kit was was sort of just about up to my knee level. You know, I, I could see into the control room, but anybody in the control room would be looking up basically at, at my knees and the bottom end of my snare drum. And... Um, when we were doing, as I say, I was away for a couple of days, but the guys decided to put down the track without me. And in those days, there were no click tracks. There's no metronomes used. Um, so the, the track shifted a little bit here and there. So I then had to put the drums on. When I came back, I put the drums on afterwards. And um, Alvin was fantastic because he stood at the control room window looking at me. We could actually just get a bit of eye contact. And I think I took, I think it was two, maybe three takes to get it. Um, God, I knew the song anyway, because we'd, you know, we'd rehearsed it before we went to the studio. Um, and they ran the track, and I think we did one drop-in, what's called a drop-in, just to quickly explain to the listeners, if they don't know, is that you record up to a point, and then you stop, and then you run, run the track again, uh, so I'm listening to it in the headphones and I play along with it and then they press the record button as I'm continuing to play. And that's what's called a drop in. You drop in and recording it. Um, and that, I think that would happen probably around about where the chorus started. I think that's where it lifted a bit, you know, because um, obviously by the time I got to it, there's an acoustic guitar and an electric guitar have been put on top of what the uh, bass and the keys had done as well. So uh, I did that, and I'm pretty sure it was three takes. And at the end of it, Alvin's standing there grinning from ear to ear and his thumbs up and, and, and wow, brilliant. Come on, come and hear it, you know. And they're very complimentary about it. So that, that was a really good um, remembrance. And, and, and by the way, uh, let's not forget, it was a top 10 single in Canada, so... Us, us Canadians have treated the band well over the years. It, it was top 10, but, um, boy, I don't even know what to ask about that song because I've heard so many treatments of it. I've heard so many other bands cover it. LA really? Guns, Tesla, a whole bunch of other bands have covered it. And it, whatever version, it just works. I mean, a great song is a great song, and, and when you can you know, give these different versions and, and it still sounds great. Have, have you heard all these other versions? Have you heard... All these covers? Not, to be perfectly honest, no, I've not heard many. Um, it's been used in quite a few films. Yeah. And, and it's still, I think the lyric is still relevant today, really. It, you know, with, with the COVID situation, uh, you know, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's a... It's, it's a timeless song with a timeless yeah. lyric yeah. and... Um, well, here, I'll, and I'll move on after this, but uh, when you first heard it or, or they first brought it to you or, or the band sits, do you know right away and just go, yeah, that's 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 a good one. That's a big one. No, no way. No. no. No, we didn't. 
the the only thing I remember was um, when Clive Davis came to see us at um, at uh, Madison Square Garden before we signed to Columbia. We were still with London Records then. And he came to see us and he kind of had to come in incognito because he was going to be poaching bands, you know. Um, and he said, give me the songs and I'll, I'll give you a gold record. We'd never had a gold record up to that point. We'd sold a lot of records, but not nothing had gone gold, which was 400,000 units in those days. And um, and Clive said, well, give me the songs and I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you a gold record. And... Um, that's what happened. He, he, he chose I'd Love to Change the World as the single. And um, and off it went, you know, and the album went gold and, and, and he delivered what he said he would do. Let me ask I you just about Clive real quick, because I, I was talking to the guys in Air Supply the other day and, oh. you know, they're like, hey, Clive came in and changed the lyrics to one of our songs and it became this big thing. What did, <laughs> what did he do for you? Did other than pick this single, did, did he sit in the studio and say, you should try this, you should try, like, like how involved? Well, yeah. we, we never saw him in the studio because we were recording in England. Okay. In, as I say, in Olympic too, you know. Okay, so let, uh, me re- let me rephrase. How important was his input then? Because he must have obviously commented on stuff. How, just how well, brilliant but, was he? Let's put it that way. From a man coming into your life and saying, I'm going to give you a gold record and then achieving it, obviously a great influence. But he invited me to one of the A&R meetings, which they used to have on a Monday morning at nine o'clock at uh, Columbia on, on 6th Avenue. We were staying at the Hilton and he said, come over um, and, and, uh, and, and sit in on the A&R, on the, um, sorry, on the promotion meeting. And what happened was about, I think there were 50 maybe more guys who'd flown in on the red eye from all around the country and came and sat around this huge um, a boardroom table and I was sort of sitting up top not far from Clive Clive was sitting at the end with two with his two keys um, Steve Popovich was the, the head of promotion then um, and I can't remember the other guy but there were two guys right next to Clive and then the whole of the long table uh, but I was up near the top of the table and Clive was saying um, okay gentlemen the meeting is open um, let's hear from Texas. What's happening in Texas? And the guy would say, well, we've got good play on Chicago. We've got uh, good play on whoever, you know, air, let's say Air Supply, but, you know, whatever bands they were working on at the time. And he said, um, I think we could do really well with 10 years after with I Love to Change the World. And that became the, the norm right around the table. And, uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. there you go. Top 10 in Canada. We'll keep repeating it. Uh, The band, of course, does uh, play Woodstock. You have this success. You've got these songs going, A Space and Time, the whole thing. Clive Davis on your... And at some point, you just throw in the towel and break up. What what broke the camel's back, in a sense? Why did the... Because, I mean, you look, you're you're Woodstock. You're this. You're Clive. You go... Why did it not just become like the Rolling Stones and go on for 50 years? Why, why was there that split where you just went, all right, we, 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 I can't stand these guys? It's a very good question. Um, over the period from after Woodstock, we started playing what we call the Enorma Drones, Madison Square Garden, Budokan in Tokyo, uh, the old Royal Albert Hall we played about three times in London, the Arunda Haller in Frankfurt, you know, all these 20,000 seater things. The, the temples of rock, basically. Well, yeah, except that Alvin was really not happy with it. Right. He, he didn't relate to that. And he didn't like 
he didn't like we had a, a quite a he had am in those days and that's where the oh, the, i remember <laughs> that's where i'd love to change the world it, it, it had been been a hit really and um and he wasn't happy with the am audience they were basically were screaming teenagers and, it, and, he, and he considered, and he was right, he considered himself a, 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 a musician rather than a pop star. And I think the disenchantment just grew and grew in the years over from, well, I know it did because when we did the, the essentially the last album, the Positive Vibrations, I mean, if, if anything, it was least less than Positive Vibrations. Um, anyway, we, we, lumped, we, we sort of limped along until 1975. And at that point, we had a, an American manager, a guy called D. Anthony, who was, uh, was very, very good for us in the, in the early days. But then he really wanted, I think, to manage Alvin on, as a solo artist and a solo career. And uh, Alvin turned to me one day, he said, um, by the way, he said, uh, I'm the star of the show and you guys are going on wages. So I said, I'm not. So he said, uh, yeah, you are. You're going on wages. People tell me I'm the star of the show and, and you're going on, you should be on wages. And I said, I don't disagree with you about being the star of the show. I said, there's no two ways about that. You absolutely are. I said, but if you wanted to put everybody on wages, you should have done it eight years ago. Because I, I, cause I'm, a, I'm a Libra and I'm, I believe in fairness. And I said, you know, we took the rough with the smooth. This may never have happened. We may never have got this far. We went through a lot of rubbish with you. Not just, I don't mean him. I mean, all of us, you know. Right. Well, the, the whole thing. And and isn't it great when managers start saying that? They, they always take one guy aside, like they did with Alice Cooper. Go, Alice, you're, you're the star here. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's not the first time. Nope. But, won't, won't be the last. Uh, but I said, you know, the thing is that we, we took that rough with you, you know, and we helped in some instances, we pushed you through it as well. If you, if you, I have a book out, you know, called uh, From Headstocks to Woodstock. If you read that, you'll see there are times way before that, that, that um, um, we, we had to influence Alvin to get, well, to, to, get, to get our deal with Chris Wright, our manager who took us to those, well, not on his own, but helped us to get to those heights that we did. He, uh, we were going up to Manchester. Um, uh, the chapter in the book's called Manchester on a Tenor because we filled our van up with 10, 10 quids worth of petrol, which is about all we had between us at the time. And we got as far as Luton, which is about 30 miles north of London. And uh, the tyre went on the van, and we had to go and get in. We had to have a new tyre. It wasn't just a burst tyre. The tyre was knackered. We had to have a new tyre, which I think cost us, we managed to scrape another tenor together somehow. And we actually got to Manchester and we did the audition with Chris Wright and then, then he became our manager later. But Alvin was all in favour of going back to London when that happened, when we got to Luton and the Tyreburst. He said, well, we'll get this fixed and we'll go back to, back to London. This is a wasted journey. And we all said, no, 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 we don't know. We don't know. We've got to give it a shot, you know. So... <clears throat> There were those things about him. I mean, that that um, we carried with us for the for all the eight years that we've been together to seventy five. Um, and I said, no, I'll take my chances. I just started my own publishing company, and I said, and I'd signed a very good writer, which I subsequently had a hit with. And I, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'll take my chances. I, I'm, I'm not. Well, you can't do that. I said, oh, I'm doing it. You know, if, if that's what you want to do, I'm out of here. 
you know. Yeah. And we did one more tour after that, which was basically it was um, it was what we called the tax tour for for Chrysalis. Um, but I won't bore you with those details. Yeah, the, um, the the tax tour. But before we wrap up here and, and remind the folks, of course, a sting in the tail deluxe edition is coming out in March. Uh, since you mentioned Budokan and you mentioned Royal Albert Hall and you mentioned Madison Square Garden, as a rock fan, you look at you know Cheap Trick at Budokan and whatever Eric Clapton or whoever uh, at at Royal. Those are the the holy grails. Is there something when you walk into those buildings that is just different and you can feel it? And and is there one that's just better to play, or are they just like those are the ones? Those are the crown jewels. Well, I, I think it was different at, at the time we did it, you know, because they were all quite new in a sense. Um, Madison Square Garden is is a barn of a place, you know, it, and in those days, don't forget, there were no screens for the, with the video. So people up in the gods, we must have been looking about, you know, three inches tall, you know, and what the sound was like, I have no idea because PA systems weren't developed to the to the to what they are nowadays. So I think for whatever, the, I think it was a twenty dollar ticket, which would be quite pricey in those days. God knows what it is now. Um, it, that you were paying a lot of money really for 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 crap sound and sight. You know, and we were lucky. True. Thank God, we we filled it. You know, um, same with Budokan was similar, very similar. And, and the thing that put Alvin off in Budokan was that um, uh, one guy jumped up. One fan was so keen, and he jumped up on stage and started running around to try and touch Alvin. And and then the the, the local uh, sort of security force. Ended up with about seven people running around the stage, in and out of the amplifiers, around the drum kit, you know. And they're all only about sort of four foot tall. Um, it, I thought it was hilarious, but Alvin wasn't impressed with it. That, that, that is hilarious. And and by the way, it, it is it is interesting because we do romanticize those times. But listen, I started seeing shows in '79, and yeah, if you if you weren't front row, you couldn't see a damn thing, and and yeah, sometimes yeah. it was so loud. It, you, if you didn't have earplugs, you couldn't hear a damn thing. So, yeah, we are sort of better off now with the nice clean PA and the big video screen. You know, oh yeah, I, I, occasionally I do a talk, you know, from headstocks to Woodstock with video and slides and stuff. And I, one of the first ones I did, uh, I did a question and answer at the end of it, and this girl said. Oh, so do you mean? And we talked about Woodstock. And in fact, my my uh, my um, oh God, what's he? he's not he's not a physiotherapist. He's uh, an osteopath. Right. I, I was going to an osteopath at the time, and this osteopath said, uh, "Oh, he said I I went to Woodstock. I was on a cycling holiday." He said, and we cycled, and we were right at the back. He said, and it was it was bizarre because he said the sound sort of went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know and then and so this girl then piped up and she said what you mean there were no no television screens no video screens i said yeah they weren't even heard of in those days i said there wasn't even any stage covering you know i mean health and safety was out the window in those days you know yeah, there, never... there was no health and safety i mean there were there no, were fire bombs and there was flames going <laughs> flames with confetti at the same time it was it was bedlam, but but you know what? It it, it was great. Now, I, I didn't ask you about hang Woodstock on, hang because on, hang on, yeah. One thing out of all the places I mentioned at the beginning, the Albert Hall was was a great atmosphere to play in. 
It had terrible sound to start with, but later they put in some um, uh, discs over the stage, which did improve it somewhat. But I always enjoyed playing there. It was it was all quite often difficult to hear each other. Bear in mind, didn't have any monitors in those days either. No in ears. No, well, I didn't use them. Yeah, and and, and wedges that would always blow out. <laughs> I don't know how any of you guys survived, quite frankly. You didn't even have those. You didn't no, have wedges. I think, I think Alvin had wedges for the vocal, and that was it. There weren't any for anybody else. I certainly never had any. I didn't have any till. Uh, 1988. Wow, that, that's actually kind of surprising. But you know what? Your hearing probably thanks you. It must. I mean, it must be great playing with the in-ears because you can block out all no, that stuff. I, I, I can't use it. I can't get on with it. I've tried it. I can't do it at all. Really? Um, but what I did in the old old days was we had the Marshall stacks. So Alvin had uh, four Marshall cabinets on on my left. Chick had another four to the left of that, and I, and Leo had four cabinets on the right. Now Alvin only used a fifty watt amp. Leo used the full two hundred or whatever, and I don't know what Chick had, but I used to set the kit up. And bear in mind, there are no risers, no drum risers, so I set the kit up on the floor of the stage, and I set it up so that I was directly between Leo's speakers and Alvin's, not in front because sound travels in a straight line and it went straight out the front. And I think, touch wood, that that's what saved my My hearing obviously has gone off a bit with my age, but, uh, you know, I think that's what yeah. saved me from, from deafness because had I sat further forward, I would have been deaf as a post. And, and that way, and also what was great, we all enjoyed playing together better in that scenario than when we got the drum risers and the rest of it because then you had to have something but i mean madison square garden i definitely didn't have any monitors well thank god because your your hearing would have been gone and uh yeah. just, just in terms of of showmanship and, and i'll end on this you know back then you had bowie coming out you had alice cooper you had kiss you had all kinds of bands even queen with freddie mercury very very expressive um how important was that for for 10 years after in terms of having a show and not just being a concert but really being a show D did you worry about that at all or you just say yeah screw it we're just going to play our songs we're still the same we just go out and play yeah yeah we, we don't have a, a a show as such no was there any pressure though no, to, no, to get no, you no, into sorry was there any pressure to get you into sequins and tights and makeup and you know confetti no, cannons I, and I, at one point, I went through a period of uh, when I heard that Keith Richard wore eye makeup, I, I decided I'd do some eyeliner and stuff. And, and I also bought a pair of uh, glitter boots with high heels in the style of Elton John. And I bought them in Lincoln, Nebraska, would you believe? Middle of nowhere. <laughs> Great place for anyway. Uh, Sting in the Tail, folks. Uh, deluxe edition coming in March. Uh, Rick, an absolute, absolute pleasure. Don't forget, and... my, don't forget my book. Don't forget the book. Yes, plug it again, please. You can you can get it by if you look at um, ten hyphen years hyphen after dot co dot uk. There's there's a form on there you can fill in to order it, and then that way they can get a signed copy. Ooh, I might have to go buy one of those. It's a lot of the stories that you and I have been discussing tonight. Yes, except better explained and at length, and uh, everybody's going to have to get that. So get the book. 
get the deluxe edition and uh, get a ticket to a show when the band gets back on the road. And hopefully, hopefully, Montreal will be uh, on that list. Oh, well, I'll make sure it is. Merci bien. Thank you so much. <laughs> Pas de problème. Merci beaucoup. Cheers. A bientôt. A bientôt. See, we got that. All right.